Welcome back. I'm Anna, bringing you this episode of the Talks at Google podcast. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode of this podcast is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. This episode features Alex Pang, critically acclaimed author, scientific history researcher, writer, and lecturer. Alex is passionate about helping people to balance work and life while becoming more productive in the process through deliberate rest. He is the author of a three-book series on work optimization, which recognizes the value of rest in creative and prolific lives, blending science and history to understand how we can live and work better in the digital age. For more information about Alex and the book, please visit www.deliberate.rest. And now, here's Alex Pang, Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. Well, thanks very much for having me, and thank you all for coming, especially especially during lunch. Um, I guess the eye masks, if you get, you know, sort of really, really out of it, will be sort of come in handy. But I hope not. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, hopefully we'll try to keep this uh, as interactive and engaging as possible. Uh, so Alex, uh, thanks again for coming out and hanging out with us. We're super excited to learn about some of the stuff you've done. Uh, for those of you that uh, may not know your work very well, mm-hmm. could you give us just a quick background on your experience and? how you actually came to to research this topic on rest? Sure, so um, a few years ago, I mean, I've worked as a, or a technology forecaster and futurist and a consultant in Silicon Valley for close to 20 years now. And about 10 years ago, I had um, a, a sabbatical in England at Microsoft Research. And about a month into this thing, I was out with my wife. We were at a place called Clowns of Cambridge this sort of weird little cafe. And I had this experience all of a sudden realizing that for the last month or so, I had gotten incredible amounts of stuff done. I was reading all sorts of cool things. I was meeting people. I was writing a lot. But I didn't have that constant sense of time pressure and being like half a project behind that was just part of normal life here. And it made me think, you know, you get so used to that that you assume that this is simply the way things are, right? In order to do interesting work, to do good work, you have to kind of live in this constant state of, of you know, always on sort of partially distracted overwork. And it struck me that, you know, my experience made me think, actually, maybe that's backwards. You know, maybe in order to do the kind of work that we really love to do, it's important to learn how to think differently about time and the relationship, particularly between work and rest, and to think about how and to recognize that actually rest is not like the opposite of work. Rest isn't a competitor to work. It's actually a partner. Um, it's something that enhances our capacity to work. Each one gives the other meaning, gives the other purpose. And it was like that that evening that made me, that started me thinking seriously about this and eventually, you know, led to the book. So. There we go. Yeah. So let's talk about that book, um, the rest book. And, you know, for you, this, this book kind of challenges that notion, as you mentioned, that there's sort of a positive correlation between the amount of time you put into work and the output you get. And so for you personally, how do you sort of manage the expectations of day-to-day life and strike that right balance? You know, because I'm assuming that there are times when you do have you know, specific, uh, you know, expectations or deadlines that you need to put in an all-nighter, for example. Mm-hmm. Like, do you, do you still try to adjust that? Yeah, well, um, I think that, you know, one of the things that, uh, that really struck me when I was writing this book was that, you know, when you look at the lives of incredibly creative and prolific people, like Nobel Prize winners and famous authors and composers and folks at that level, yeah. you know, of clear, obvious accomplishment, you see this really interesting dichotomy, which is that, they organize their whole lives around their work. They're incredibly ambitious, but they don't spend their whole day working. Mm -hmm. And in fact, a lot of them will work really intensively for about four or five hours, and that's it. And when you've got a lot of control over your time, that's the the model that people in a whole bunch of different fields gravitate to. They often do this really early in the morning. So, you know, essentially by noon, their most important work is done. Um, Some of them, 
will then, you know, some of them will do this super early so they can go off to their day jobs. Um, you know, people who are like writers with day jobs. This is like the classic thing that they do. Right. Um, and what they do essentially is sort of layer periods of intensive work and periods of rest in ways that allow them to, to both get a lot of stuff done and also recover from that work in a way that helps them be more creative. Because essentially that downtime gives the kind of creative subconscious an opportunity to work on problems that they, that they hadn't solved sure. when, they were, when they were kind of consciously working. Um, it is in a way a routinized, very systematic version of, I think, the experience that we've all had of work, you know, of uh, getting stuck on a problem and then going for a walk or going to get coffee and then realizing all of a sudden, wait a minute, you know, sort of here's the answer. Mm -hmm. Aha moment. That turns out, you know, those seem mysterious, but it actually is something that you can learn or your mind can learn sure. to do a little more systematically. And so what that means for me is that um, when I'm writing a book, I get up super early. The most important part of my writing day is between about 5.30 and 7.30 in the morning. And then I have you know, another period where I take the dogs out, we go for a walk, I have some more ideas when I'm out on the walk with them. Um, and then you, know, you kind of write that, you always write that stuff down, and then the regular day starts. Right. But I'm also, you know, since writing the book, I've also become really, un not good necessarily, but unapologetic about doing things like taking naps, um, you know, sort of taking the weekend off when I feel like I really need it, mm -hmm. um, and sort of uh, appreciating the importance of things like sleep and exercise. Mm -hmm. I think particularly people who use their minds and like stare at screens and keyboards all day tend to underestimate just how important it is to actually be, you know, just how much like actual energy and physical work even cognitive work turns out to be. Right. And so paying attention to that has been really important. And what this has meant for me is that, you know, kind of working, working in the kind of traditional or of hyperactive overworked way, um, I was able to write one book in about 12 years. Since I've discovered all this other stuff, I've written, what, three books in eight. Wow. So, you know, my own productivity is much higher and I think I do better work than I did before. So. You know? That's so. awesome. Uh, and I think that's great. And I think, you know, one of the things that we really get to enjoy here at Google is all the different, all the different benefits and perks that allow us to kind of balance our workday mm -hmm. and kind of have that downtime when we need it, which I think is super useful. Uh, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, here in the Bay Area and especially at companies like Google or some of the other tech firms, you know, we tend to attract a lot of like high achieving individuals. And, you know, I'm sure for yourself too, I'm sure you're, you have a lot of these expectations you know, not only from society, but also culturally to, to perform both academically and professionally, right? <laughs> and so for the current and future generation, what sort of advice do you have for them and for us to sort of manage those expectations while still right. achieving our potential and getting things done? I think that for, okay, so for people who are really ambitious, who are high achievers, and people who actually really are very passionate about their work, right? Passionate to the point where they're capable essentially of engaging in kind of very slow self-harm in order to, or, if, or make these big sacrifices in order to do this work. Um, the thing that, uh, that is important to develop is um, what I call in the book, deep play. I mean, people who have really long careers that are very productive throughout turn out to have really serious hobbies. I mean, at the level of like taking a month off and climbing Mount Everest level of serious, right? I mean, these are uh, I mean, people who are, you know, even if you are in a fast moving field, you're engaged in something that is, you know, sort of, you are essentially, you know, racing to decode DNA, for example, wow. you know, as Watson and Crick were doing, even while they were working on that, you know, they will go off like, go hacking in the mountains, they do, you know, they go off on vacations. But what they what all of these people have is some kind of really serious hobby that offers, that first of all, gets them out of the office. Mm -hmm. But second, offers some of the same satisfactions as work, but in a very different kind of environment, and usually in a much more like physically challenging, sort of challenging way. So the canonical example is like scientists and mountain climbing. Mm -hmm. Do we have any climbers here? Just, okay, 
So the way, I mean, there were, were, of, there were enormous numbers of physicists and mathematicians and other folks are, or have been really serious mountaineers. Mm-hmm. Rosalind Franklin, to stick with the DNA example, you know, who did the X-ray crystallography, she was actually one of the best female climbers of her generation. Like guides competed to climb with her because they would get in the papers. And for them, they talk about climbing as being like science. Right? You have this big problem that you break down into a whole bunch of little pieces. It's very analytical. You know, you have this plan that you've got to execute. It's a way of getting close to nature. But at the end of the day, either you've made it to the top or you haven't. You don't have a, you know, you don't have a mess of data that, you know, where that doesn't really tell you that might or might not give you an answer. And or if it's a, and it gets you out into a very different environment than or if you, you normally work in, unless you're a geologist. I think, but you know, people who have really, who have really long-lived careers, often have these engaging hobbies that actually are engaged. That's that harness some of the same passions that their work has, and it's that I think that gets them out of the office and gets them, you know, onto the water or onto the hiking trail or up the mountain. Sure. Um, but when you have, but I think having that is a really important thing if you want to have both a very productive career and a long career. Beyond that. So for you personally, can you share some of your deep play examples and something that you've, things that you do personally that really allows you to be effective in what you do? So you know, I, um, my deep plays, I'm, you know, I do a lot of walking, mm-hmm. I mean, or, of, or, you know, day hikes, that sort of thing. I mean, we are, you know, we're in like the world capital of, of incredibly accessible, beautiful parks. So I take as much advantage of that as I can. Um, to a far, and, you know, I think that sort of for me, a lot of the rest of it is a lot of the daily practice stuff, right? right? You know, sort of naps, or of exercise. I've become a lot more serious about taking, about essentially, or of, you know, about exercise and sports than I used to be. Partly it's a function of getting older, but partly it's a function of discovering that actually a lot of incredibly smart people turned out to be really serious athletes. There was this wonderful study in, the start this longitudinal study starting in the 1950s of scientists in Southern California. And this was a study that turned out to include Richard Feynman and Linus Pauling and a couple other Nobel Prize winners. And it looked at their careers over 30 years and gave them psychological tests throughout. And over time, this group bifurcated into the super high achievers, four Nobel laureates, a bunch of other really notable people, and then people whose careers kind of stalled out. There were no psychological differences between them in terms of ambition level or other things. The only big difference was how much they exercised. And the high achievers tended to be a lot sportier, and they saw themselves as having time to do this, whereas the people who felt super time-stressed and therefore gave up sports fell fell into the lower category. Interesting. Well, so, I wouldn't be surprised if we see an uptick in our utilization of our fitness centers and you know, go, pods now. They're very <laughs> nice. Go for it. Yeah, and they're free too. Yeah. Um, so a lot of this advice that you kind of cover in this book seems to be, I don't want to say common sense, but they are pretty practical things that anyone can do, right? Mm-hmm. In your experience, has there been sort of a, a common mistake that a lot of people make consistently on their way to sort of implementing these strategies in their own daily life? Like, hmm. is there something that you've noticed? You know, I mean, the, it is so much more common to go in the opposite direction, right? To, or of, to, to undervalue rest than to, than to overvalue it or to do it wrong. Um, and I think that the, you know, the single most important thing that people sometimes don't do enough of is really to actually take rest seriously. Like seriously enough to make time for it in your life. Right? We often think, well, you know, we'll re- that you'll rest when you get everything done. Well, you never get everything done. Right. Where I think none of us, none of us live lives in which that's the case. What we have, and you know, we have, we have jobs, we have entertainments, we have various other things that, if you know, if unbounded, um, if unconstrained, will soak up every moment of time and attention that we have. And so, what you have to, I think, you know, the the important thing is first of all to be essentially to be proactive about rest. Right, not to see it as something that happens kind of sort of at the end of the day, but something that you you know something that you plan. 
Um, and I think also recognize that it's not just something that happens between like 11 a.m. and, you know, 11 p.m. and 7 a.m., right. right? That deliberate rest, the kind of rest that helps you be more creative, that helps recharge the mental and emotional and physical batteries that you spend working, that this is a kind of rest that's valuable to get during the day that will be helpful through the day. Awesome. It's great advice. Uh, let me switch gears just a little bit, Alex, and talk a little bit about one of the other books that you've written, The mm -hmm. Distraction Addiction. Um, and that book talks about some of the best practices to avoid you know, being distracted by all the different you know, technologies that we have, social media and things like that. You know, for, for those of us who live and uh, work in the Bay, you know, we're inundated with data and all this other stuff. H how do you, what are some of the best practices that you've seen that work effectively that you could maybe share with us? Uh, for those of us who live on our phones, mm -hmm. you know, I'm checking my phone. Know, 100 times a day, for example. Like, is there a way for me to balance that out and still be effective in my work? Someone described the someone described smartphones as the marshmallow test that we fail 250 times a day. Right. Um, and I think that the you know um, for me the two things that seemed most powerful mm. were first of all um, be really aggressive about having whitelists on your phone. Okay. Like, you know the a, you know. For all of its miraculous properties, a smartphone is essentially you know, a, a high-tech way for other people to interrupt you, mm. to, cap, you know, to, to claim your time. And, one of the, and it doesn't have to be this way, right? So one of the things that I do is I have a set of alerts for people who pass what I call the zombie apocalypse test. Right? <laughs> In the zombie apocalypse, who do you need to reach? On my phone, those people get one ringtone, which is the opening bars of Derek and the Domino's Layla. Mm -hmm. Because no matter where I am, I am going to recognize that uh, Eric Clapton and Greg Ullman riff. So it cuts, you know, it cuts through anything. Everybody else gets a little bit of um, one of Yo-Yo Ma's performances of a box solo cello. And I can make it, you know, and first of all, it distinguishes between, you know, who's really important and who I can make a choice about. Um, the other thing I think that's really valuable is practice of a digital Sabbath. Mm -hmm. You know, having you know one day a week, you know, a weekend, whatever, where you turn off everything that distracts or interrupts you, which for different people is different, mm -hmm. right? Um, but doing this on a regular basis serves the purpose, first of all, of getting you thinking about your relationship with your devices sure. and the relationships that sort of are mediated through them. Um, reminding you that you can actually take control of this, that the defaults on your phone are not the ones that you have to live with. But also reminding you of essentially what it's like to not be interrupted 16 times a day by notification, you know, or more by notifications. And so I think that that's, that's a really useful discipline um, for, you know, both for the technical reasons, but also because it reminds, because it gets you thinking about your relationships with your devices more generally and what you would like them to be like. Fantastic, yeah. No, I definitely need to get that on my phone for sure. Uh, let's talk a little bit about sort of your history, you know, coming up as an author. And for you, Alex, you know, you've had a lot of success and career longevity uh, in this space. And for a lot of us, you know, maybe some of us in this room want to write a book on rest or maybe a different topic. So, preferably a different topic. <laughs> maybe, yeah, but, we don't want to compete yeah. with Alex, right? Uh, so what sort of advice do you have to, for people who are interested in kind of following a similar path, maybe as a side hobby? Mm -hmm. And then a follow-up to that is, as, a, as an Asian American also in this space, which I'm sure is also very competitive, what are some of the challenges that you face and overcome as an Asian American author? Okay, so um, first off, as an author, uh, the most important advice is don't quit your day job. So, you know, the, I mean, seriously, the, the number of people who only become full-time writers after their fourth bestseller or so is you know, legion. And Terry Pratchett did this, Alan First, you know, Tolkien never gave up his professorship. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the fact is lots of, lots of really accomplished literary figures do other things. So don't assume it's got to be, you know, don't assume that even if you're really passionate about, about writing, that writing should be your main source of income because for all but a vanishingly small number of us, it's not going to be. Also, I think that it imposes that having, having another significant life can impose a useful discipline on you. That, you know, when you've got an hour or two a day set aside 
you know, you really focus in. And for any writer, it is much more useful to have that constraint than it is to have a full day at the end of which you wonder what the hell you just did. Um, I think another thing is, you know, I, most, write, most, most people would advise write every day and write what you know sure. or write what you're really interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's good advice. But I think just, you know, um, I think the other important thing is mainly do it for yourself. Mm-hmm. Because the actual either financial or, or critical rewards are so far out of your control that, you know, unless you're willing to spend an awful lot of money on targeted advertisements or, you know, or of basically, you know, do things to, or of, you know, to goose your sales, mm-hmm. um, you have, God knows what's going to happen with your book. There are so many great books that just sink beneath the surface and are never heard from again, but are really fabulous that you just, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen. As, so, and then to the question of an Asian American author, I think, you know, for me, um, I grew up in, um, in Tennessee and Virginia. And for most of my childhood, my brother and I were, and my dad were the only Asians we knew. Right, so I think that you know, part of what that part of what that experience provided was a degree of not necessarily comfort, but familiarity, kind of with being socially socially something of an exception, right. um, which, as a researcher, as you know, as a kind of anthropologist, has made it really. E- made me really comfortable with asking what seem like sometimes really stupid basic questions, but which sometimes can lead to really interesting things, mm-hmm. right? Um, for this, for the latest book, the one that, I, that I've just finished, it's also been important because um, it's meant being, a, I've got, um, you know, I've got like friends and cousins in Korea who can translate stuff for me, who, you know, who are able to like help me out when I was in Seoul. Um, because a because it turns out Korea actually is a significant place where um, some of the action in the next book happens. So from a practical standpoint, that's turned out to be um, useful in a way that I hadn't expected when I started it. So. That's a good example. Thanks for sharing that, Alex. Uh, You know, one of the things I wanted to also ask you is regarding kind of your research methodology. And, you know, in your most recent book, you know, one of the things that I found really helpful and sort of uh, insightful is the fact that you know, what constitutes good rest is sort of can be counterintuitive. For mm-hmm. example, I think you mentioned some of the benefits of even serving, like, for example, in the military yeah. as sort of a break from a civilian job, right? And so from your research that you've done in some of your previous works, what did you find to be sort of the most surprising discovery or insight that you didn't quite expect? Yeah, you know, um, that military study was done in Israel, and it turns out that people who came back from reserve service exhibited many of the same psychological characteristics of, like, sort of refreshment away from work that people who went on vacation had. So what that what that turned researchers onto was that it wasn't time away from work, it was basically like psychic distance that was the really important thing, or what they now call detachment. That was one really important, really important thing. Another one was um, discovering how much good rest is active rather than passive. You know, we tend to think of rest as something that you do on the couch with like a remote in one hand and salty snacks in the other. But it turns out the really restorative stuff is often much more physically engaging, much more often mentally demanding. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, but I think, you know, any of us who've had the experience of, you know, coming out of the gym feeling kind of exhausted, but also kind of energized, right. is, you know, that's actually, that's actually a real thing. Um, you know, and then I think that um, the importance of, the sustaining importance of really serious hobbies. I think is the sort of the other thing from the last book that really struck me. You know, just how significant those are for you know for keeping people balanced, for giving them a sense of perspective. You know, for helping them. You know, essentially, sort of stay more human for you know more of their lives. Right, and it sounds like it's more focused on the quality as opposed to the quantity aspect. Right. Yeah. Really, being an expert there. Yes. So you mentioned earlier uh, the upcoming book, which is, I believe, titled Shorter, How Companies Are Redesigning the Workday and Reinventing the Future. Mm-hmm. 
Do you mind giving us a quick preview of that and a little bit of a TLDR so we know what to expect? Right. So the book is about companies that have moved to four-day weeks or six-hour days. Mm. So going um, without cutting salaries, without sacrificing productivity or productivity. And these range from software companies to there are a few factories, design firms, advertising agencies, and a bunch of Michelin-starred restaurants. So, you know, these are not like you know, guys selling beads out of their van down by the beach, Probably right? Not. These are, inc- yeah. you know, these are, you know, these are, these are like really serious, really serious, ambitious places working in industries where overwork is just taken for granted. So what I do in that book is look across them and ask, all right, where are they and how do they do this and how can we do it? And um, fortunately, a lot of them turn out to, to use what is essentially design thinking um, to, or of, to, to navigate this, um, a kind of rapid prototyping of their own organizations, a lot of experimentation. Um, and, so, and so that's what the book is about. Um, and yeah. these, you know, and the other thing, these, these companies range from you know, or of two people to more than a thousand. There are some in there, and they are geographically spread everywhere, right? It's not just like Scandinavia, where you might expect this kind of thing to order to be a thing, but US, UK, and it turns out Japan and Korea are also significant nodes in this. Um, you know, sort of two countries whose languages have their own specific words for working yourself to death are, you know, also places that are some of the most enthusiastic experimenters with shorter working hours. Sure. Yeah, I think overall our, our work-life balance here at Google, maybe for some teams it's not, but overall I think it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. But I think it doesn't hurt to maybe give one of these to our managers once the book's out <laughs> as, a, as a holiday gift. <laughs> no, and, you know, I think, or if you'd mentioned that um, a good bit of rest was common sense, which I right. think is exactly right. And again, what these companies are doing is, you know, it's not like, not, you know, it's not 11-dimensional chess. Um, an awful lot of it is stuff that is, rel- that is, you know, it's, it's the sort of stuff that's easy to describe but difficult to actually put into practice, right? It's like, how do you lose weight? You eat less food. <laughs> and yet, there's an enormous industry in helping people do that, right? But... You know, there are studies that, uh, that indicate that between um, you know, the distraction of incoming emails, time spent in meetings, self-distraction where you're working on something and then you like tab over to Facebook or, you know, you check your, you know, you check your, yeah, Instagram or whatever, people, knowledge workers lose something on the order of two to four hours of productive time every day. So if you can get a handle on that, all of a sudden, you're a lot closer to being able to work a four-day week with no loss of productivity than you had been, or of than, or of uh, than before. And you know, we have these. It turns out there are these enormous gains that we have in our productivity that have been buried under a rubble of like you know bad meetings and social media distraction. And if you can just clear that stuff away, then you can reclaim a whole bunch of time Absolutely. that currently is, you know, that just feels like it just sort of evaporates. Yeah, no, couldn't agree with you more. Uh, my final question for you, Alex, uh, I think we're running out of time here, yeah. but, um, you know, with multiple books on, on this concept and theory of rest, deliberate rest, uh, distraction addiction, and also, you know, aiming for like a four-day work week, what's next for you after this, this uh, trilogy is over? And you know, can we expect similar themes in your next project? Or do you plan on maybe going in the opposite direction and maybe talking about something completely different? Um, it's what my agent can sell. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, that's um, yeah. to be, you know, there, were, there are, I think, any, you know, there are a thousand interesting things you can work on. The question is figuring, and you know, the first filter you apply is which one you can sell. So, you know, I've got ideas, but um, we have to get through this book first. And then, you know, it may well be that just as the four-day week book flows out of questions that I got about rest, Mm -hmm. maybe the next book will flow out of questions that come out of, you know, come out of the new book. You know, I think there's actually a couple other books that focus on this sort of four-day workweek concept. I think one of them is also written by 
um, I forget the individual name. Do you guys ever collaborate within sort of the, the writing industry to kind of share ideas and best practices or um, do you tend to uh, research on your own? The stuff that's been written about the four-day week has been, there were, there were some other things which were pretty different from what I've done. Right. So, um, I mean, I think I know a couple of those, a couple of those folks. Most of the writing that's been done so far has made more of kind of a moral argument or an environmental argument in favor of shorter hours. Um, what I've been real, and in a sense, that stuff that appear that could appear in like New Left Review. Right. I'm interested in in um, writing something that can come out in Harvard Business Review. Um, you know, it's the argument to entrepreneurs, to managers, as opposed to like the policy and the moral argument, you know, that says that you can actually do this, you can have a better life, your employees will have a better life, and you actually won't. You can do it in a way that costs you very little and rewards you very handsomely. That's great. Well, Alex, this has been awesome, and we're really looking forward to your next work. I think uh, now we can maybe open it up for some questions from the audience. Please. Uh, my name is Emmanuel. Um, so when you're, uh, I have a question about the concept of deep play. Okay, sure. And its distinction. Um, so when you say that deep, the deep play activities are still things that engage like a lot of your reserves of energy, like mm -hmm. your physical and your mental capacity, would you say that the distinction between deep play and like your actual work is like whether you choose to participate in that activity or whether or like something else? Or? Choice, choice certainly is one of the things that distinguishes work from play. Um, and sort of, uh, and a high degree of control over it is, you know, is important. Now, a high degree of control is also is important in, you know, a lot of aspects of your life, right? You know, sort of people, it turns out people who are less stressed at their jobs tend to be less stressed, not because they're doing less, but because they have a lot more choice over what they focus on, right? So this is, so, you know, um, there's a famous study of British civil servants and people at a very senior level who tell other people what to do. They feel less stress because, you know, not just because they can delegate, but because they, they're in control of their lives much more than their subordinates are. Um, but I think that the, you know, it does seem kind of does seem kind of counterintuitive that expenditure of energy would actually be restorative. But in fact, it is. You know, we are, I mean, basically, you know, as, as humans, we are built to spend and then recover energy. This is simply the way that, you know, that bodies work. Um, and so, yeah, um, accept it and go with it. So, thank you very much. Hi, Alex. So we talked about interrupts earlier. What are your thoughts about the psychological state of flow in both work and in play? Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, sort of for anyone who's not familiar, this is the concept that Mihai Csikszentmihalyi talks about in his famous book Flow, which is a kind of total, a kind of, or of psych high level of psychological psychological engagement in work where your sense of time falls away, you're able to work, you feel effortlessly. I mean, this is this is a description of how or of how under ideal conditions or of you're living all the time, right? Um, so I think it is, and I think in a sense, you could say that the people I talk about in rest are essentially seeking flow constantly, whether they are, you know, whether they are at the blackboard or in the laboratory or whether they're out on the trail or, you know, out on the mountain. Um, it is in a sense all about different varieties of flow. And if they don't feel that, they find something else. So yeah, but you know, sort of, Find it and stick with it. You'll have a better life. Thank you. Hi. Um, so I I feel like um, the main point that you share is the realization of how rest can really help your life uh, mm -hmm. to achieve this work-life balance. Uh, this question might be more about like towards uh, building habits. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like well, one of the challenges is that realization, of course. But then the next challenge is like, how do I start changing this? How do I change my life to kind of like, uh, you know, get all of these benefits? Like, uh, we're all feeling like, oh, I have so, uh, so much work to do. How can I just go and rest now? And right. Like that. So do, would you have any, you know, advice or approaches about how to go about this? Um, two things. I mean, first off, I think that, uh, that building the habit of rest 
is not significantly different from building any other kind of habit in the sense that you know there's a certain amount of time it takes in order for habits to become somewhat more automatic. Um, and it's really kind of getting over that point that is one significant thing. And then, you know, the other important threshold is sort of coming back from time to time so that, you know, you, you know if, for example, something throws, you know, sort of throws off the habit that you're able to return to it. The second thing that I would say about learning to rest well, though, is everybody who learns how to do it does it the hard way, by which I mean everybody who learns about the importance of deliberate rest does so after burning out, right? No one, you know, or if even incredibly smart people are stupid about this, right? They go through these periods where you work super hard, you think you can handle it, something, you know, you get sick, something else breaks, mm -hmm. and it's after that, basically the people who go on are the ones who discover how, or if, how to bring more useful rest into their lives. And so, you know, I think that the, or if, but, you know, far from, far from being pessimistic about this, I think that, you know, the message, the message we ought to take away is that, you know, no matter what, it's never too late for you. You know, if you feel like, or if this is, that, you know, you're in a job or you're in a situation that is overwhelming, that's actually the stage that people who, that people who learn to rest well are in right before they learn to rest well. So you know, I think that's, uh, that, is, that is an important thing to take away. I'm gonna read a question from the door here. Sure. This one says, if research repeatedly shows that productivity actually increases with more deliberate rest, why do ideas like 996 persist? In modern day, it, can, it can't be that business, startups, corporations, et cetera, don't know about the research. Right, um, they do know, but it is basically, you know, cheaper to work people to death and get new ones. I mean, but, but, you know, essentially, when, when you are in a situation, okay, so 996 is what Jack Ma talks about, right, with Alibaba. And, you know, basically, you remember, there's the, or the, um, the Indiana Jones movie where Indy's got Kate Capshu, and he's saying, or if, you know, or to give back, you know, or to uh, give back the jade or I'll kill her, and, it, you know, and the bad guy says, oh, kill the girl, I'll find another. This is, in a sense, I mean, the, uh, quite seriously, places like investment banks, you know, or of big law firms, there's a whole segment of industry, a whole segment of large companies that bring in large numbers of people with the expectation that either they'll go off to, you know, get an MBA or do something else after a couple of years, or they'll burn out and you just get more of them. Um, so, and it's no surprise that the companies that have been moving to four-day weeks are ones that generally have had real problems with retention and turnover. So, I think as, you know, as markets get more competitive and as having people with a high level of skill as opposed to an ability to spend 14 hours looking at, you know, spreadsheets is more important in your company, um, you know, that's a balance, that's a balance that changes. You know, and then some people are just psychotic. Yeah. Some bosses simply, you know, for them being able to work work people enormous number of numbers of hours is the point. Um, it's also finally a way of compensating for bad managerial behavior, right? If you have a dedicated workforce who, you know, you, you know, you've got subordinates who don't want to let each other down, you know, people who care about their work, and you screw something, you know, you screw something up and you know they're gonna come in on weekends and nights and fix it, that creates a bit of a moral hazard. End of rant. And to add to that too, Please, Alex, yeah. I think also the, 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 the incentives that are aligned, right? For example, if it's billable hours or if it's you know, other things that incentivize managers right. and contributors to work longer hours and they get compensated for that, that mm -hmm. might also have something to do yeah. with. No, you know, and we also live, you know, and we also live in an era in which you know, some of the most exciting you know, exciting technological innovations involve figuring out how to get large numbers of people to work long hours for you while being contractors, right? I mean, essentially, sort of, you know, figuring out how to turn human labor into even more of a finely chopped up commodity than it already is now. And, you know, can you, essentially creating a subprime market for attention and work. Mm -hmm. um, so. 
real end of rant. <laughs> Hi, I'm Saloni. Um, you mentioned Hi. taking naps and protecting your time. Yeah. Um, could you share an experience where you are in practice doing that and you've um, interacted with someone who's not receptive to that um, space and how you handled it and how you can drive that cultural change? You know, um, so I've made the, I have not, I have not personally encountered the challenge of convincing a manager that naps are worthwhile, fortunately. Um, you know, I think that there are, or if, you know, unfortunately, this is one of those things where there are, there are some managers who are convincible with, you know, by research. And there's now a substantial body of research about um, the benefits even of naps as short as 20 minutes. Right, we're not talking about having to you know sleep for two hours. Right, twenty minutes is offers a variety of psychological benefits, heightened awareness, alertness, etc. Um, the reality is that there are, you know, I think balanced on the uh, or of on the other side of the scales are a whole bunch of presuppositions, assumptions about both um, the linear relationship between hours worked and productivity or goals met. Um, and second, a kind of moral sensibility that either putting in long hours or making other people put in long hours is a self-evidently good thing. We get a lot of signals on that second side, and it's and I don't want to underestimate the difficulty of sort of, of fighting that, particularly at the individual level, right? And part of the reason that I've written a book about companies that are doing four-day weeks is that. I wrote it, I started on it because when I was promoting rest, I got a lot of questions along the lines of, okay, so if you are you know, a single parent, how do you convince your boss that um, you know, flexible hours are better for you? Or how do you find more rest you know, if you've got two kids and you know, you're on partner track? And I had some answers. But it made me, but you know, Working through this made me realize just how much the problems that we have with, with building more rest into our lives are not about just leaning in. They're not about life hacks or tips and tricks. These are fundamental structural problems that flow from the way that the workday is designed, okay? Working moms don't need life advice, particularly from you know, a 50-year-old guy. Um, what they need is a four-day work week. What we, and indeed, what we all need and what is within our, within our reach are these kinds of basic structural changes in the way that work happens, the way that work is done, that turn out to bring all kinds of benefits both for individuals and for companies. And so I think you know, the last thing I would say is it's certainly worth trying to make this case, but the reality is we all deal with these big structural things that we're all going to have to solve together. So you know, or if, if you know, so um, it's I think maybe what would it be like? Organization as opposed to conviction is or is the I don't know. I'll, we'll have to workshop that, but. Um, my name is Serena, and my Hello. question is, what is your understanding on the work-life balance? Mm -hmm. um, like, does it actually exist here in our culture? Because when I think about work-life balance, I think there is a pressure in maybe just the Bay Area that we want to also be productive in our life itself. Like, mm -hmm. there is this um, pressure that I feel like you want in your free time, you want to watch a podcast, you want to go to the gym, right. you want to keep learning, you want to read a book a week, you know, all mm -hmm. of these different things. Um, and especially for like, a working mom, I assume that there's also this pressure. So what do you think, like, what is your perspective on the work-life balance? Like, maybe is it the work-rest balance and we're thinking about the work-life balance wrong and it should be deep play? The, you know, okay, so I think the fact that... Good question. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the fact that we still struggle to figure out whether we should call it work-life balance or something else suggests that we don't really quite have our, or of hand, you know, or of our arms are quite around around the problem. Um, I think, first of all, that it is that, you know, okay, a lot of the research that I've seen indicates that 
in contrast to the way that we, the, the way that our kind of work-life defaults are set, which are to assume that, you know, or of, that these things all kind of munge into each other and that that's okay. Actually, um, barriers are a good thing. Like firewalls between our working lives and our personal lives actually make make us both better, more productive workers and make us and give us happier personal lives. Um, this is a challenging thing to work out for ourselves, partly because we carry our offices around in our pockets, partly because we have a lot of people who know that we carry our offices around in our pockets and therefore believe that we should be reachable and accountable you know, at 11 o'clock at night. Um, but I do think that you know, uh, to the, I mean, to the degree that it's possible, there are things that one can do personally. I mean, we talked about you know digital sabbaths and whitelists as one example. But again, I think that this is the you know this is a great example of a problem that's actually a social problem, right? The problem is not that your phone is going off. The problem is that other people think they can command your time in this way. And one of the most remarkable things that I've seen in the companies that have been doing four-day weeks is they all have a worry about what clients will say, right? You know, sort of especially if they're consulting companies or they're advertising agencies, the big worry is, you know, the earth is gonna, you know, gonna spin off its axis and crash into the sun, and our clients are gonna leave and go to Kantar or McKinsey or whoever. And what it turns out is that, I mean, I've interviewed a, I've interviewed a hundred companies, and I have heard of exactly one case of a client saying, no, this won't work for us. It turns out what's far more common is either if you do the work, the clients are fine with however you do it, but a surprising number also say that, you know, the fact that I know you're not gonna call on Friday, you know, the fact that you're taking a day off means I get a little pressure off as well. And that turns out to be something that they love. Um, and so, you know, it's, it is, everyone, everyone is surprised by this, but I think it illustrates the way in which work-life balance is not just a matter, you know, again, of personal stuff, but you know, it is actually a big structural organizational problem that, you know, that we need to solve at the collective and enterprise level as well. Thanks so much for an awesome presentation idea. I love it. Uh, I'm curious how you think that this works across cultures and countries? Because mm -hmm. it seems like different countries that work harder have stronger economies and more technological advancements and right. the ones that don't work as hard fall behind. So what are your thoughts on that? Okay, so far, um, I mean, I've only seen this in of developed countries, I mean, you know, essentially like, you know, G20 countries. Um, there, I have seen anecdotes about um, of you know, about it being tried in places working in developing countries, who knows? As for, okay, so how, however, as for sort of, as for the cultural dimension, um, I think there are places, okay, so the particular challenges that you face in implementing, let's say, a four-day week vary from place to place, right? You know, um, one of the companies in Korea that I studied has a rule that says, I, uh, that, you know, they've got a list of like their 11 commandments, and one of them is don't say goodbye to the boss at the end of the day. Because there is the, and what they're, what they're fighting is this sensibility that you can't leave until the boss leaves, and the boss never leaves, and you know, you don't want to call attention to yourself by leaving before them, but you also don't want to be impolite, and so the rule is just go, right? And I'm not sure that that's a rule that, you know, it's not necessarily something that like a, you know, a call center in, you know, in Glasgow, Scotland has to implement, which is another place that I studied. So I think that there are, you know, specific cultural norms that uh, the places have to respond to, but I have yet to see a place that dislikes, you know, in which people dislike having another day to themselves. Um, you know, maybe that would be the sequel. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. My name is Stacy. My question is around 
the book you've been talking about, Shorter, Mm -hmm. and the enterprise-wide decisions to change the work week or the structure. I'm curious in your research if you found any companies that didn't make enterprise-wide changes, but were open to or successful in implementing more flexibility or customization within a large enterprise, for example. Right. Um, The, okay, um, the answer is that all of places that I've looked at have implemented shorter hours across the board. And partly this is, and partly a lot of them are smaller. Um, partly the, part, some of them have had experiences with flexible work schemes where either, um, you know, they offered flexible work and they thought not enough people took it or, you know, People who people who should have been taking it didn't take it because they were worried about you know their you know about career advancement about all the things that that anyone who's thought about going to flexible work would worry about right also the fact that when you switch to this you often end up working even harder because you want to prove to your boss that you're actually not just watching Days of Our Lives and you don't want to let down the team right so it you know it turns out to be to offer challenges that a four-day week where everyone takes the same day off just does not, right? Everyone's on the same calendar. You don't have to worry about whether someone else is or isn't doing their work because, you know, everyone's on the same schedule, right? Um, a tiny number of places do both um, if they've been doing flexible flexible work for a long time. You know, these are like software companies where people are already in five different time zones and everyone's like living on Slack and there's a huge amount of remote communication anyway. So under those circumstances, you know, the shift is an easier one to make. But you know, I have yet to see a place where just one group does it. On the other, but I, you know, on the other hand, you know, it's worth noting that there are plenty of companies where different, you know, where different occupations, occupational groups work very different kinds of schedules, right? You know, in the oil industry, you know, the people who are out on the rigs are out there for two weeks because you can't commute to or, you know, to and from Aberdeen to the, you know, to the North Shore oil fields, North Sea, um, you know, whereas, you know, elsewhere people are, people are working nine to five. So I think as time goes on, we'll start to see some places that offer four-day weeks to divisions where it can work. But, um, you know, the movement is early yet. Thank you so much for your time here. I think we learned a lot. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more awesome content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle at talks at Google. Talk soon.